We were on our way to South Asia with an organization back in 2004. And um, I got introduced quickly to two books that would eventually blow my mind. One was Bruce Carlton's Acts 29 training manual. And the second was David Garrison's Church Planting Movement. Both of those books were hot off of the press a year or two and showed up in this meeting room and both of those books were right there. I asked if I could take those books. It was my first introduction and exposure to those books and I just consumed them. And I'm a bit, I'm a bit of a healthy skeptic, a uh, bit of a realist. And so I read all these great stories and I wanted to know, could it happen? Is this real? Is it legitimate? And so that began to me a hunger to see, man, if we, um, if we were to cooperate with God and what he's doing, and just use simple principles, could we see a mass movement of people coming to Christ, thousands or tens of thousands, perhaps even hundreds of thousands or millions? Could we be a part of something like that? Let me go back even 10 or 15 years prior to that. When I truly came to the Lord, someone challenged me to read the Bible. I'd been going to church all my life, but really hadn't read the Bible. When I accepted that invitation, I started reading the Bible. And I met in the Bible a God who could divide water, who could stop water, who could make a rock produce water, who could make an axe head float, people walk through a fire without getting burned. I mean, all the stories that we hear. And I asked God at that time, man, do you still do that today? I, I, I've heard that you're the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. If that still happens, can I have some of that? And so that started for me a lifelong prayer of being able to experience the supernatural, the eternal aspect of God's plan. So when I hit David Garrison's book and Bruce Colton, and I saw that God was doing literally an, an Ephesians 3.20, which is a life verse of mine. We call it the E320 living, that God can do more than we can think or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. Those two thoughts, supernatural living, eternal living, and God was moving majorly around the world, these mass movements of people coming to Christ, disciples being made, churches being started. Man, God, is that where you want me? Is that part of me in your story? Because if so, I accept. Let's get the show going. That's, it. That's the invitation. That's where I got started. Okay. And what, what happened next in your journey? Yeah. So uh, we came uh, to, uh, to India. And within the next 20 or 30 days, I'm a bit of a learner. I'm curious. I ask a thousand questions. And so I was able to meet David Garrison. I was able to meet Bruce Carlton. I tracked those guys down and and asked them a hundred questions. How do you know this is true? How do you know it's real? Are these legitimate disciples? Are they faithful to the word? Are the churches, what do they look like? They're small, but are they real churches? Does God think they're real churches? Asking all those questions. So I'm trying to learn and in a sense, build my own convictions of what I believe the Bible is teaching for me and how I should live it out. 
So we come to South Asia. We are uh, actually spent uh, 10 days with Bruce and Gloria in a training and uh, pounding them with questions. And very quickly, uh, I'm, I took a brother to that training. And within a month, we had seen uh, God start 10 Bible studies that could become house churches practicing the Steve Smith, Ying Kai, T for T model of teaching. Very quickly, 30 or 40 people came to Christ. And so I learned early on, that was within two months of landing on the field in South Asia. And I learned very quickly that, wow, some of, some of this can actually happen with me in the game, with me do, playing a part. Well, because of some different issues, that work did not continue. But I went back to learning language. And uh, in September of 2005, I was invited to another Acts 29 training that was conducted by a coworker. And uh, he asked me to teach a couple of sessions, maybe on prayer or the abiding life or something like that. I didn't teach much. I was just there. But what I did do is I worked the room. And I met with the, all the church planters that had come to that meeting. There were about 40 of them, all local guys, all Indian guys, in fact. And uh, I met all of them. Well, after the training was over, about two months later, one of the brothers called me. His name was Johan. He called me. He said, brother, can I come see you and talk to you about a computer problem he had? I said, sure. So he came in, we talked about his computer problem, but he was one of the church planters in that training. So I asked him, Brother Johan, uh, was that training helpful for you? I'm still trying to figure out what I'm doing, how I'm doing it, what we're going to teach. Four Fields is not around at that time. We since have aligned with that, and it's very helpful. But before then, we were just trying to figure out what we're going to teach, what we're going to say. This is 2005. So I asked him, Johan, was that training helpful? He says, ah, very helpful, brother, very helpful. Well, I've learned that all the Indians are nice, and so everybody says it, right? So I said, no, you can be honest with me. Tell me how it was helpful. He said, ah, very good, brother. I very much like your training. I thought, okay, he's told me something that told me nothing. So I decided to change my question, and I asked him, so, Johan, can you tell me what's different today than 60 days ago? 90 days ago. What are three things that are different today? And he says, well, brother, we started 13 new churches. And I said, you've done what? He said, yeah, we started 13 new churches. And I said, well, how, how did you do that? He said, we did what you told us to do. Well, I didn't tell him to do anything. My colleague actually told him that. But my question was, so what did we tell you to do, man? Learning what actually worked, what, what actually was done to allow God to do what he wanted to do. And he said, well, brother, there were two principles in that training that unlocked my cage. The first was that any layperson, any volunteer, any person could start a church. I never realized that. I thought they had to be trained biblically, ordained, full-time, all of that. And he said, when I heard that principle about the priesthood of believer, freed me. He said, the second thing was that a church is the people and not the bricks and the steeple. He said, I always thought in my mind that I had to own a piece of land and I had to have a building for it to be a church, to be legitimate. Because in my culture, that's just kind of what we value. 
But when I learned that it was the people meeting together and they could actually meet outside, they can meet in a house, they can meet in a shop, anywhere. Again, that's the second lot that was undone. I was discipling five people, went back, challenged them to identify three villages each, go to those villages, share the gospel, do the Luke 10 and all of that. And I will coach you on how to bring those people together and start a small church. And they had started 13 of these churches. Being the skeptic, being the... I asked him, brother, can I come see? Steve, I visited seven of the 13 churches. And I would love, I would have loved to have been a vital member of any one of those seven churches. Each of the churches had probably about 15 or 20 people in it. The hunger, the excitement, the transformed lives. I'm thinking, wow, this is good stuff right here. That was the beginning of a multi-year relationship with Johan, where we would go out and we would teach people. Our, our one-day training was Bruce Carlton's 10 universals. And the first four things, pray, sow, gather, teach, which basically is the four fields process. We were praying, sowing, gathering, teaching. And, and over the next year, we saw 150 of those groups start. Over the next couple of years, there were over 500 of these groups started. And so God showed me, he convinced me, the healthy skeptic, the realist, that if I'll cooperate with him on his terms, that he actually can do more than I can think or imagine. And he will do it. He's pretty faithful like that. And so that was what was next. That's how we started. And so pretty, pretty glorious stuff. So the, the two blockages that you mentioned were one, um, the idea we need ordained Western educated clergy and we need a church building. So all of a sudden there's a great barrier of entry, isn't there? Correct. Um, and were there any other significant blockages or was it just get those two out of the way and these believers have got the zeal to get the job done? Yeah, well, the ones through the years, the ones that we typically run into are the authority issues. Who, who can and who can't, as a colleague loves to say, um, who can baptize? Who can actually teach the Bible? Who can actually serve the Lord's Supper? Who can gather? And so, or who can gather the people and lead a group? So once we address those authority and responsibility issues, that's a major issue that seems to unlock a, a new world to many of our people. And I, I'm living in um, the southern part of India right now. And um, it's very, it has a traditional history. And so those are, there are a lot of mindsets there that we have to address. So we take people right to, right to the word, spending time in the word, open Bible. Hey, what does God say? Your culture says this, God says this, how do we, how do we work with that tension? How do we work with the differences there? So um, priesthood of believer, uh, churches, people, the believers, that gives a bit of freedom, the authority, who can, who can't, who can do things, who is God authorized to do certain things in his work. Those are major, major keys that unlock the mental cages that some of our people find themselves in and as the the outsider coming from another place another culture another language 
What did you learn about your your role in that sort of first phase? Yeah. So um, I guess different people can see themselves different ways as a foreigner. But that was one of the questions I was constantly asking of my mentors, David and Bruce and Kevin Grease and some of those guys who were our mentors in the early days. What is our role? And I found that one of, one of my roles is that of a catalyst going in and finding people that are already have that hunger and vision and showing them what can be in a greater way. Johan was already in the word. He was already committed. But when he saw those two keys that unlocked a couple of his doors, he was all to the race. And so challenging people on their assumptions, challenging people on their beliefs in a nice, friendly way and saying, hey, is what you know and what you've been taught from the word? And they say, oh, absolutely, brother. Everything's from the word. Okay, can I show you another part of the word that might be a little different than you're thinking? How do you, how do you address this difference in things? So being a bit of a change agent, helping people change their thinking, see new paradigms. And so seeing that to be a key role, a bit of an equipper and an empowerer, we, um, from day one, we wanted to empower or assist the local guys. We didn't want it to be our ministry. Uh, we have yet to label any church. We have yet to label any denomination. Um, in fact, when people, the locals tell us, brother, you just tell us what to do. And we push back on that and say, no, we don't want to tell you what to do, but we will work with you to help you find what you should do. And we guide the conversation and do like that. I learned along the way that, you know, early on my ego said I was there to help Johan know how to live for Christ. But in reality, what happened is he taught me how to die for Christ. And I find that these local, local brothers, they have so much to teach us. And so how do we find our role in cooperating with these guys? And so I have a term facilitating obedience that is a driver in my life. That's, a, that's one of my four values that guides my life, facilitating obedience. So one of the first questions I want to ask with the local believer is, or a local leader, man, what's your vision? How can I help you achieve it? Of course, there has to be some vision alignment and what God has called me to do as well. But um, I, I see my role as that. It's coming alongside these locals and helping them do what they do further, faster, healthier, just making the work better, them, helping them achieve the vision God has put on their heart, the call that he's given to them. What was the, what happened next? What was the next stage in your journey? Yeah, well, um, so we saw God do some great things along the way. Um, actually, Bruce Carlton at that time had gotten into the conversation with, with unengaged, unreached people groups. And he had a list of about 345 of these unengaged, unreached people groups. And he asked me, emailed me one day, he said, are you working among any of these groups? And Bruce, I don't know, I have no idea. And he said, would you be willing to check? And I said, sure. So we gathered all of our leaders together. We pulled out the list and went through. And at that time, the first check, we were in 13 different people groups. But at the end of two years, 
we were in a month, we were in working among 44 different people groups, 18 of which were on Bruce's unengaged, unreached people groups. That to me, we had not really been tracking people group activity. That to me began my uh, a journey to start tracking people groups. We before we were tracking churches and village activity and workers and leaders and things, keeping up with those things. But that put UUPGs on my heart. We were working with UUPGs and, and multiplying disciples, leaders, and churches. And our organization actually formed a team that would focus on that called the Ends of the Earth team. Some of the people you know were on that team in multiple places around South Asia. And so leadership at that time asked, you know, we've got some holes in North India, so would you be willing to go there? And so my family, we moved to Delhi. We sensed that God was in this. We moved to Delhi and started working other, the northern part of India, working among UUPGs and continuing to multiply uh, disciples, started working with different people who were doing that. And so um, have been a part of multiple um, multiple multiplying movements of disciples, leaders, and churches. And I found something interesting, Steve. Um, I've, I've been able to wear multiple different types of hats in different movements. And um, there was one that's, that's fairly large that you know about and other many other people know about. When I got in that movement, it was two years underway. When I showed up, they had already started 2,000 house churches. And one of my heroes and colleagues had been the one to train them in that work. And so we talk about DNA being set. The DNA had already been set for multiplying for house church, for local leaders, for multiplying leaders. This whole leadership levels paradigm was being taught with master trainers and strategy coordinators. Um, so a lot of that had been introduced. But yet I felt that God invited me to be in that work. And it wasn't my role to necessarily introduce those concepts, but to continue campaigning those principles to get in and encourage, empower, equip, help resource some of what God was doing. So I found that in that movement, I wasn't necessarily the catalyst. I was the expander, if you will. And so coming in and taking it from 2,000 to 5,000 and 6,000 and 10,000 or whatever churches and then addressing health issues. Man, are these churches, are we even healthy? Are our disciples healthy? What are we doing about that? And so helping bring things in to help the work be healthy. And so that was, that was next. And then actually God sent us to London. And so I was surprised. That was a curveball for my family. The work was going so great. Why would you do that, God? He put us in London for a couple of years, and we got to experience a European landscape and the different dynamics there. And you know the people that we work with over in Europe, many of those names. And um, we spent two years there, and then God invited us to come back to uh, South Asia and work again. And so now I find myself... Uh, in an in a information seat, a research seat, helping resource and equip people with the right information. Where, where's the gospel? Where's not? Where are churches? Where are they not? 
working in that realm while we also try to facilitate movements among locals, mentoring, coaching some guys. So that's been the journey up to now. Well, and I, I know you and the team have just done some work on uh, how to measure progress, how to measure what matters in, in this whole uh, movement sphere. And uh, we'll, we'll put a link to the, the, the document you've produced, but do you want to just tell us a bit more about, um, you know, why you and the team got engaged in that project and, and what you hope to achieve through the resource? Yeah, and so the resource that you're talking about is, uh, actually it's in PDF format now, it's not even a book, it's more like a manual. It's called Measure What Matters. And there's several pieces to this perfect storm that brought it to a head and helped us to, to do this. One was I, I found that in my work through the years that when I measured, when I tracked, that enabled me to assess, to evaluate, to diagnose. And then I could talk, and if, and if I tracked with a level of detail, it enabled me to assess and diagnose with a level of specificity, with some intelligence. Mm. We weren't talking pie in the sky, we were talking real deal. And so if I could assess to that degree, then I could coach with intelligence. Hey, what if the next 60 days look like this in your work? You could address this problem, this problem, this issue. Hey, I see you're not multiplying from first generation to second generation. Let's look and see what might be the issue here. So we're problem solving, we're coaching. But I found that I could problem solve better if I knew the specifics about a problem. And so all the way through our work on every front, whether it was leaders, how are we bringing leaders from emerging leader to productive, reproducing, fruitful, faithful leader? Churches, church help, emerging church, new group of people. How do we get the help? How does this church multiply? Disciple, how do we track the health of a disciple? People groups, how are we tracking people groups? How do we know whether any people, people groups engaged or unengaged, where they are? And I mean, every front of our work. And now the the conversation these days, one of the conversations hangs around exit. So if Paul had permission to say, all right, guys, I'm done. I'm on my way to Spain. How do we get to that place? If God has called us, if, if we are actually are an apostle who is sent out from one geography to another, when is our job done? And so how do we track that? How do we talk about exit? So that history came to is plays a major role in it. So I've done a lot of that tracking and assessing and played a key role in developing some tools and systems and structure and tracking UUPGs. And with those, those systems, we were able to confidently share with the global world that on our watch, with what we are familiar with, over 400 formally reported unengaged UPGs or unengaged UPGs have been now been engaged, that we know where the work is, we can take you, we can show you that. And other organizations like FTT and different people like that are doing the same thing. And so the tracking, keeping the reports has enabled us to confidently say what is and what isn't. 
So some of my colleagues felt in the leadership circles felt, man, should we increase the volume in this conversation? Should we talk about it more? Should we help our colleagues and GCCs and locals know how to track better? And there were a couple of new technology things being done, some new apps. Uh, you may be familiar with the GenMapper app, the NPL GenMapper and GenMapper.com. There's some other mapping apps. The Coalition of the Willing, that was brewing, that's trying to track believer, disciple, and church presence in every area of the world. But their starting place was South Asia, one of their starting places. All of that was brewing all together. And so our leadership said, let's formalize this discussion. And so we formed a tracking and assessment task force. And that started about a year ago. And leadership asked if I would be willing to lead that, to form that task force, to lead that discussion, facilitate that discussion. So we started meeting. We met, we formed a task force of about 12 people in early 2020. And we started discussing it. And early on, we realized that in order to carry the conversation well, we needed a resource. So can we put together a resource that talks about all of the issues related to tracking, reporting, assessing, coaching? We use that acronym, T-R-A-C, tracking, reporting, assessing, coaching in the manual. And we try to address different issues like biblical rationale. Does God care? Should we give attention to it? If he does care, what did he track? And how did he track? Did Jesus have a report form? Did Paul? We're asking all these questions. All of that is included. We know that in tracking, are we tracking just numbers? You know, people, some people poo-poo all the big reports that are coming out of India. We're interested in the big reports, but we're also interested in the one person and the one church. So that tension between quality and quantity, we address that different tools that are being used, at least that we are aware of and are used regularly are represented in this manual. How to track people group work, how to track leadership development, how to track exit, how to know when you can leave. All of that is touched in this manual. I come from a business background mm -hmm. and I know the importance of reports and tracking to track sales numbers and profit and revenue and these things. And so I read a lot out of the business community still today, and I find that we can sanctify many of their practices and use them in our work to build the kingdom enterprise. And so one of the books that really touched me was a book written by a man, man by the name of John Doerr, and the book is called Measure What Matters, and he tracks the work that he's involved in, Apple, Google, Facebook, Intel, QuickBooks, all of those great companies that we look to and admire and he talks about how they track what matters they actually measure what matters so that was a bit of the inspiration for this title of measure what matters so we ask in the book if we're to measure what matters what matters to god what matters to jesus and if it matters should we measure if we should measure then how do we measure and so all of that is touched on in the book. Now we're, we're trying to uh, roll out this 
vision and information to those who may find it helpful. But how do you keep it uh, simple at the front line? Yeah, it's, and that's one of the key questions. And we actually talk about that in the manual because it can be overwhelming. What exactly do I track? There's, if I want to track and measure, what do I do? And so the question is, uh, what, what's your vision? What are the key pieces that get you to your vision? And those key pieces are the key metrics, if you would, that I need to be paying attention to. So for us, our organization, the people, our tribe, our people that we hang around with, our vision is no place left. That's a Romans 15 call. But what does no place left mean? So we've unpacked that and tried to define it for us. That means local leadership, local ownership of what we call the core missionary task. Now we defined even what the core missionary task is. We studied the ministry and model of Paul and Jesus, and we feel that we can define that core missionary task into six different components. And we call those entry, evangelism, disciple making, or discipleship, church formation, leadership development, and exit. Six parts. Mm. We trace Paul's ministry, and we feel like you could package his ministry, if you would, to make it simple into those six components, following all of his journeys, and even with Jesus. That seemed to be their priorities. So we said, hey, look, if we're, if we're going to be apostles, if we're going to be sent out ones, missionaries or whatever, if we're going to be workers, what's our role? We label that the core missionary task. Well, we feel that part of exit is helping local leadership own that vision and task. So because that's our vision, no place left, equaling local ownership of the core missionary task of these six components. We want to measure that. How are we doing? So one of the things we want to track is presence among place and people. So how are we doing with place and people? Or is there activity? What is the level of activity in these different places and people? And that's the whole coalition of the willing, right? They're tracking the place metric. Do we have disciples and churches? Those are key pieces of the core missionary task. Local ownership. I would track leaders. In fact, that's probably, in, in my mind, if I only had to track one thing, I would say track disciples and leaders. You say, well, that's two things. In my mind, a leader is a mature disciple. So track people, track the leadership. I would... I would recommend getting to know the leadership level model and tracking where are all my leaders? Are they level one, two, three, four, five? And I think you probably got a podcast on this somewhere. So go back in the library and learn about leadership levels if you haven't been exposed to that. But I would track where are my leaders? That would let me know where I need to coach, where I need to teach, where I need to train for further leadership development because I need multiple of those leaders. I would track disciples and leaders first and foremost, then I would track church health because disciples and leaders continue to are developed and continue to be developed in a church context. I would track those things among every people in place. So tracking disciples and leaders, church, healthy church, where and among whom. That's, that's if I had to sum it down into just a few things I would track, that's where I would hang. How many years you've been on this journey, Randy? Uh, in 
been a believer for 27 years, been in international work on the field for 17. Okay. So, so what keeps you going? What keeps you encouraged uh, in, in this call? Hearing stories of God having his way in people and them becoming a part of his story. Them realizing that he's God and living for him, fearing him, honoring him, loving him, whatever. Just yesterday. And this plays into all the things that we were just talking about with the measuring and tracking and faithful disciples, whatever. Just yesterday, I received a couple of WhatsApp notes from a, a local leader that I work with. We recently, God worked out the details, a great miracle story of getting us literally tens of thousands of the Gospel of John booklet. In fact, 50,000. Free of charge to us that somebody somewhere, some kingdom business person helped fund that project. Major part of God's story. We received it. We're passing these out in the field. And we've got a plan that whenever we train people how to share their story and God's story, we give them five or 10 of these gospel booklets and we're using it as a track actually. And we're challenging people. It's in the local language. We're challenging them to read this. So the quantity aspect is my partner, I'll call him S. S says we trained 40 people and we gave out each person five of these booklets. So we gave out 200 booklets. We, we, that's a great story. We could send that home and say, man, we gave out 500 or 200 gospels of John. Great. But we know we want to see the transformed heart. We want to see if God is working in a heart. We know his word is living and active. But let's see the fruit on the tree, man. And so we challenge our worker. And this is, again, our role on the field, our part in God's story. Hey, we're giving the booklets out. But, man, what's even better is seeing the fruit grow on the tree, collecting the tree. So any way we can go back, can we check and see what God is doing with the book, with the Gospel of John? And so they make plans. They calendar it into their calendar to go back and visit these people, walk back through the people that, in the check. And they did, one of the trips was yesterday, getting out in the field, probably wearing a mask because COVID is still bad here. They're going out, they're checking. And he writes me back with two stories. He says, sir, I guess we should believe that you won't believe. That one of the ladies who got the book, she was so excited to get this book that she's reading it. And she gets to John 3. And it just tears her up that God would actually send his own family member, his own son, to die for her sins. She got so excited, he said, she took that book and went throughout her village showing other people this book. Hey, did you read this? I've been told this is true, that God would love me so much, he would give me his son to pay my price, to die for me. What of our gods is doing that? And now there are people that are interesting. They're forming a, a group there that we know will become a church. They don't know that yet, but they're interested. They're listening to the Bible. Now we've got another leader who's going there to get some leadership and direction. 
to help the disciples understand what is in that little booklet, hopefully to bring some maturity. So then we introduce New Testament, then we introduce full Bible over time. You're making disciples there. Well, that's exactly why we tracked. My partner, S, they gave out the booklets, but they knew who they gave them to and where they lived. He also told me the people communities they were from, sir, this was among the XYZ people group in this area. So they're tracking all that. Because they tracked, they were able to go back. Because they knew that there was some response to the gospel, now they were able to send a leader. I mean, can you say Jerusalem church sending Barnabas to Antioch? I mean, same thing. So we're sending the leader there to help teach the church. That's the value of tracking. But note that we're not just tracking the number of these gospel booklets that are going out. We're tracking the response. We're tracking heart change and transformation. So it all comes together. And that just happened yesterday. That's the stuff that keeps me fresh in this game. And that's why we would put all the hours and energy and the effort into producing a resource that takes a lot of discipline and late nights to produce. That's why we pay the price to see that right there happen.